This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Welcome to episode 44 of the SuperAge podcast. This will be dropping on July the 21st, 2021. And this week on the podcast, we have something a little different. We have Will Henschel. Now, the intention of the recording, as I started it, was just a 10-minute sort of background chat with Will to help us write his profile for an Aegis cover story. Now, I, I was very interested in Will because I, I knew sort of vaguely he'd had an um, interesting past. He was a musician at one point, and he'd done some other things. And, and in particular, he had a business called Focus at Will, which is a subscription service that I subscribe to, and it's background music soundscapes to help one focus and um, essentially get stuff done. And as we do a lot of our work here, um, we're listening to that. Uh, And I know a lot of other people do exactly the same thing. So my intention was, well, let's find out a little bit about Will and and find out about Focus at Will and and what that's about. Well... (laughs) Things don't always turn out the way we plan. So I start talking to Will, and I'm thinking this is just going to be a short little chat. And what becomes really clear to me is that this is a man of deeply textured background. Um, For all of you out there who are thinking about a career pivot, um, he's had more than I can count. In, in an array of different industries. Uh, and he had the time when he died, and he came back. Will flatlined at one point. So as we, as we did this, as I was speaking to Will, I, I knew this had to be a longer Super Age podcast, that this was really something special, listening to him like this. And I didn't want to you know, chop this down into a you know, 1,500-word written profile that I really... We need to bring this whole thing out. It's quite something. Will's, you know, 62, as, as he'll tell you. And, you know, he was a famous rock star in the 90s. And he's been a tech guy. And he's done all kinds of stuff. And he's got a lot of fascinating things to say towards the end of the recording about what he learned from dying and coming back. Really profound things he has to say there, and he has some things to say about ageism and what that's about. So stay tuned. It's it's a bit of a long one today. It's um it's a little over an hour. It's worth it. Um, you want to approach this one as listening to an amazing story um, uh, by an amazing guy. And we're going to get to Will Henschel in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. You know what your chronological age is, or at least we hope you do, uh, but you know what your inner age is. I've been using the Inside Tracker platform since February, when I did my initial blood test and my genetic tests. And over the next several months, I followed the recommendations on the platform. The result was I reduced my LDL cholesterol by 20% in that amount of time by using their food-based suggestions, along with a couple of supplements. No drugs. Now, I sent those blood tests. I did a second set of blood tests back about three weeks ago, and I sent them to my regular doc. I said, what do you think? And in his words, he said, this is amazing. What are you doing? Well, what I was doing was following the recommendations on the Inside Tracker platform. I'm a huge fan of this platform. It works. Um, you know, just looking at the follow-up on my levels everything's better. So it's really, it's a wonderful thing. It's, you know, this is not a replacement for going to see your doctor. You need to do that. You need to have a GP. It's an add-on. It's a way for you to take incremental actions to improve your health in a way that, you know, my doc's not going to tell me what to eat every day. 
Inside Tracker will. And it really works. It really helps. If you would like to check out Inside Tracker, and I suggest you do immediately, go to insidetracker.com slash ages, save 25%. That's insidetracker, all one word, dot com slash ages, save 25%. Hey, Will, how are you today? Well, Dave, it's a real pleasure to be here, first of all. And um, as I get older, um, because I've had a pretty checkered past uh, in, in varying lives that I'm, we're going to talk about today, um, I feel like those guys you used to see when you were kids holding a pale ale, a very strong pale ale, at the bar on their own, just smiling. Right. Yeah. That's what I know I'm going to be doing like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that too. And then, oh, I can't talk about that, but I remember that. <laughs> oh, boy. Is that our future? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the future. It's great, mate. Um, so we're going to, um, I, I want to ask you like your history, which is quite extraordinary. I've had a great life, uh, Dave. I've done all kinds of things. I'm a, I regard myself as a songwriter. I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an inventor. I've been a professional photographer. I've been an audio engineer. Um, and I've just been interested in lots of different things and, uh, I'm still to this day. That is exactly what I've heard, and I can't wait to hear these stories, Will. Where are you, Will? Uh, Marina del Rey, Venice Beach. Oh, yes. I used to live on um, 7th and Rose in Venice. Okay. Yeah. I'm uh, in the peninsula, uh, just steps from the sand. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's good. I, I, yeah, it's a long story how I ended up here. I, I was just going to move to the beach for a couple of years after I had a brutal divorce and lost my house in the hills and the whole story, and then... Eight years later, I'm still like at the beach. So what I understand to be Will 1.0 was the music. Yeah. <clears throat> London beat. Well, actually before, so as a kid, I was always really interested in science and music. My dad's a science teacher, um, a high school science teacher. And um, he taught physics and chemistry. And uh, my uh, mom's side are, are were all scientists and doctor uh, related doctory things and um i just had this kind of recessive weird gene that kicked in that i was a i was like the cuckoo in the nest that could play and write music no one else in my family um can do this my dad kind of plays one finger things on the piano but not really and so um, I was like this little kid who was both really interested in science and doing experiments in my dad's lab and, you know, um, fascinated. I grew up in the, in the seventies and so fascinated with, uh, you know, the NASA landing on the moon and my granddad, um, was a, my granddad was an expert on steam engines, like local you know, um, not so much locomotive train steams, but actual traction engines, which are uh, steam vehicles that were used in the early 1900s, late 1800s for farming and for, you know, hauling things around. There was a period after horses before we went to gasoline where it was all steam powered. And my grandfather was... Um, one of the world experts on steam power and steam vehicles. He wrote a whole bunch of books about it. His name is W.J. Hughes. He's still, he's, he's still very well known <laughs> on the internet, interestingly. And so as a kid, I was always around engines and, and mechanics and science and logic. And... Um, Steam engines, I remember being with my grandfather on his steam engine. He had a, um, it was like a truck, uh, and it was a very early uh, big rig, basically, but it was steam-powered, and it was called the Sentinel. And I just remember him talking about how it's logical. You put the heat in here, and then the water goes in there, and then it goes into a piston, and it turns the thing. And if something's not working, there's something in the chain broken, which is just like writing code. <laughs> winding forward many years um, my brother who's four years younger than I 
uh, were both really interested in the early Sinclair computers in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And we both got really interested in programming these little things. This is literally basic programming. You know, the language is basic. So sort of with my, my lineage of my dad and my granddad, <clears throat> my granddad on both sides, um, being so sort of logic and science-based, getting into computer code and understanding how computers worked was an incredibly obvious thing for me. However, unlike my brother, Matt, who's, as I said, four years younger than me, he, he's also here in California. You know, I live in Los Angeles. My brother lives in San Francisco. Um, he went into being a coder and a developer, and he's worked on um, bank, a lot of banking systems in the back end. He was one of the early Oak developers, which became the, um, the Sun system, you know, the, the Sun microsystem stuff. But I sort of went through this inflection point when I was in my late teens where I got really interested in recording music. And because I had ability to play and pick up a tune on an instrument, then sort of I got super fascinated with the process of recording music and recording sound. And that led me down this other parallel track of analog recording. Back then it was all tape to tape, you know, tape reel it was all reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape machines and starting off with a four-track and then going to an eight-track where you could record eight things on some half-inch tape, half-inch wide tape, and then a 16-track, which was a two-inch tape, and you could have 16 faders at the same time so you could record the drums separately. It was a really big deal back in the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. And then... That led, some, led me to my first real job, which was actually engineering audio. So my very first job was in a place called Bristol in England. Um, it's a long story how I ended up there because my mom lived in London and my, 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 my dad's family lived in the north. But I ended up in Bristol. People know of Bristol because that's where Massive Attack came from <laughs> later on. But I was in Bristol and I started my own studio and I had... Um, some pretty decent success as an audio engineer, as a young audio engineer. In particular, Bristol has a large uh, Jamaican uh, population, and I found myself working with reggae bands. And I was like this, you know, skinny white kid working with all the dub bands. There was a band called Talisman, um, another band called The Cimarrons, uh, another band called uh, Black Roots. These were big um, uh, big British reggae bands from the 80s. And I just enjoyed the challenges and the structure of recording reggae. You know, Bob Marley was this huge artist at the time, of course. And then um, recording reggae back then was different than recording rock music because everything was gated. So... Like with rock music, you just have three mics in front of a drum kit and then everybody be playing Eric Clapton, be playing guitar. You know, we all know what rock sounds like, but reggae was not. Everything was like the bass drum goes, Dum! and then the snare drum goes, Tip! and then there's a little tiny for the hi-hats. And you had to kind of do that by gating all the drums and making them all fit and put it all together. And it was very scientific, really fascinating. And that, you know, I, I got noticed and then I got offered jobs engineering and producing better known bands and um, started working. Uh, I'd, I'd moved to London, which is obviously the centre of the music business um, in, in the 80s. Worked there for a few years and I did a lot of work with <clears throat> uh, the major labels as a hired gun, as a remix engineer. Worked on all kinds of 80s, uh, 80s bands. Uh, if you, if anybody's <laughs> remembers the eighties, uh, it was a lot of fun, and I worked with you know bands as as diverse as the Ruts. They were one of the seminal punk bands from the from South London. I worked with uh, Rusty Egan from Visage. I worked with, and then I I met Dave Stewart from Eurythmics and worked with Eurythmics. And while I was working with Dave. Uh, 
I'd started writing some songs of my own and I'd actually got to a point where I was working with a whole bunch of pretty well-known artists on their follow-up albums. And you've probably heard of the second album syndrome where people have many years <laughs> to write and record and create their opus, their opening work. And then they have six months while they're on the road to write the second one. And so I remembered I was just working with a bunch of artists who were doing their second albums and that they were terrible. And I was like, damn, I can do this better than that. I know I can do this. I know I can write. And I just never did. So Dave Stewart encouraged me. And then I met these three singers um, who were session singers in, in the UK. And they were um, they were they were phenomenal and uh, Jimmy Helms, uh, Jimmy Chambers and George Chandler. These guys were soul brothers who were nearly 20 years older than me back then, and they'd had massive careers uh, as, as both as a lead singer, Jimmy Helms, and also as background singers. They sang on, between them, the three of them, they'd sang on 2,000 hit records. That includes, like, Eric Clapton, uh, Tina Turner... Um, the Honey Drippers, which was Robert Plant's uh, solo project. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And I met these guys, and they were so interesting. They were such phenomenal singers. And very quickly, we sat together and we wrote this. And I've got those feelings again. I guess I'm For people listening to this on the radio, I'm actually showing a video of me with a stupid 90s haircut. So this really launched my um, that really launched my career as a as an artist. And with these three guys, we call the band London Beat. We wrote our own material. I was the main writer of the band. I'd come up with like, you know, the driving idea behind the song and then we'd finish it together. So it was this fantastic collaboration with me being this skinny white kid and then these three amazing soul brothers. And I learned a great deal about human, uh, about humanity, about people. These guys were just older brothers to me and they taught me a lot about growing the F up. You know, they taught me a lot about white privilege and uh, just... It was a fascinating ride. And um, we were together for nine years. We had five huge hits. Uh, the two that people remember in the States were Thinking About You and Better Love. Um, and uh, we toured from 90 to 94. We toured all around the world, sold a lot of records. And then, I don't know, like when you're with a girlfriend, you <laughs> you just know it's done. Yeah, it's done. So, um, 94, I got really interested in digital recording because by then the recording studio business had changed from analog recording, which is recording on real drill tape machines, to recording through digital equipment into computers. And because I'd got a technical background in computers in my teens, I really understood this. So, I was a really early adopter of working with computers in audio, really early adopter. And um, a lot of the uh, London Beat material was, was cut super early on uh, digital stuff. It was called uh, Sound Tools back then. It wasn't even called Pro Tools. And um, Logic Audio and all the other tools that you probably heard musicians talking about. And that uh, that led me to the next thing, which was the the third reinvention because the first thing I did was I was an audio engineer and then the second thing I did I was in a band as a working musician and in fact you know I've got about 600 songs published and six of them pay my way still today so when people say what do you do I always include well I'm a <laughs> I'm an actual songwriter I'm not like a wannabe songwriter or I'm trying to get a project off the ground I'm actually a songwriter I got I got a wall of gold records up here and, um, yeah, still six out of 600 pay me royalties. That's a pretty terrible hit rate, by the way, uh, David. <laughs> I believe it's 1%. <laughs> Do 
just like the VC business, right? Um, that led me to the next thing I did, which was the third period of my life, where um, I met a guy called Matt Moller. And Matt Moller was a genius-level computer science um, master's student in Northwestern University. And I got in Chicago, and I got really interested in remote collaboration. How do you... Uh, what happens if you have a singer in New York and you have a drummer in Boston and you have an orchestra in Los Angeles? That'd be expensive. So let's put the orchestra in Prague. That's a lot more affordable. And then the producers in London. How does that work? Well, to cut a long story short, for the next nine years, <laughs> Matt Moller and myself with two other founders, Canton Becker and Tim Brand, we formed Rocket Network. And it was a tech business. Uh, we raised... I went from being the, the founder of a band to being the founder of a tech business, uh, CEO, um, founder of a tech business called Rocket Network. We raised close to $50 million. We got investments from Paul Allen, from Cisco, uh, a bunch of other uh, investors around in the, in the 90s. And we moved to San Francisco in 1997. So we were there in the first dot-com dot explosion. And uh, that was a very interesting time in a lot of ways. I uh, sold my place in London. I got divorced and then bought a house in uh, San Francisco. And um, people were telling me at the time, they'd say, oh, San Francisco, it's so expensive. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a bargain. London is expensive, man. I... London property at the time was four and a half times what San Francisco was, and San Francisco was called expensive. So I sold my little London pad after the divorce. I got like 20% of it or something, and then I was able to use that to start myself up and, and get a place in, in San Francisco. So, yeah, that was the tech world, and I had a vertical learning curve in running and managing a U.S.-based tech company and uh i've been used to working with drummers a lot of my friends musician friends are drummers and they're kind of singularly minded they're uh, drummers that's what they do they pick up a stick and bang it on stuff um and they're the most fun if you know any musicians and they're drummers you'll know exactly what i mean these are the guys you want to hang out with not the flute players and not the sax players and not the heady people no 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 not the guitarists who are writers they're just nah forget it drummers they're the guys well, I discovered a dev team is like running a, it's like being in a band with a bunch of drummers. And the developers were all on the spectrum, like a lot of drummers are, and they just care about one thing, which is writing code. Drummers are just about playing the drums. And it was kind of useful to me to have had the experience of working with <laughs> a bunch of drummers to be now dealing with a tech team. And, you know, I, a whole bunch of people took advantage of me because I came from a different culture and I was in a band and, um, you know, I hadn't ever run a tech team before, but I was an inventor and it was the first time that, <clears throat> together with Matt Moller, we invented some, got, uh, you know, four or five patents, uh, maybe more in the end, on this uh, technology, which is now still in use today. It's part of, um, we sold the company to Avid which is Pro Tools, and the tech is part of the um, Avid cloud collaboration system. And it's called track-based collaboration. And uh, we were early. We were very early in the game. The pioneers are the guys with the arrows in their backs. We were literally 25 years too early. Uh, audio collaboration has really only started to come really of age in the last couple of years. It's an accepted thing, but at the time, no one was doing it. So that was the third thing, being a tech inventor, inventing. And then we worked with we worked with all kinds of people in that period. Um, we found that the customers for the technology were not musicians, but was really the film and um, TV business. So we had some well-known musicians at the time, Clapton and U2 and Herbie Hancock and a bunch of other very well-known artists at the time were using our tech, but it was kind of expensive because Avid was, um, you know, it was owned by Avid and they liked to charge people. Um, 
But the real magic of the system came when we found that it was perfect for foreign language dubbing in the movie business. And so now the first um, the Harry Potter movie, the first Lord of the Rings movie, uh, these were some big movies that were done using the Focus at Will system. So I had some sort of very interesting insights into film production and uh, not only the mechanics and the artistic process, but the business behind it all. It's, it's, and the security. Of course, when someone's doing the final stages of a film, once it's all been actually cut and the visuals are done, there's this massive rush to get the uh, audio locks into the visuals that have been approved as soon as possible. And um, this technology was really helpful. At, at, you didn't have to fly tapes or discs around. You could do it securely with a banking-level encryption. That's what Rocket Network was for, for uh, track-based collaboration with audio. Then, and was the third, then the fourth stage, I quit completely because I was done in 2003. I'm like, I'm done with high-tech and I'm done with music. I'm going to do something else. So... I embarked on the most lunatic scheme I've ever done, which was wanting to be a professional photographer. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that would make you laugh. Um, I know about this one. <laughs> I, I generally don't talk about it, but I, I did. And for seven years, I was a professional photographer here in L.A., eking out a living. And I started an agency called Brilliant Studios, and I became part of a well I was part of a very well-established uh, catering company. Uh, and um, we shot all kinds of things. It was very humbling, very humbling, and I have no regrets doing it at all because I was one of the jobbing photographers in the agency, and I would go out and I would shoot celebs or I would shoot events. I went from <laughs> being a high-tech CEO to being an actual photographer, <clears throat> and I've always had a good eye with cameras. I've always had a been able to take a good photograph, but actually doing it for real and paying the rent and keeping the wheels on for seven years doing it had me become extremely adept at handling a camera. And uh, one of my mentors, I can tell you a funny story. There's a guy called Mark Robert Halper, who is one of the leading, if not the leading commercial photographer in Los Angeles. And he was advertising for a... Um, uh, uh, an intern so it was on his site so I filled in the form and I said uh, I'm looking for an intern job as a photographer and uh, here's my uh, here's some of my work and I'd love to consider doing a six-month internship with you because uh, he was you know the top guy so he wrote me back and he said, yeah, your work's all right, but it's a lot of it is just snaps. But I think you've got an eye and you've got some potential. So um, when can you start? So I was like, whoa, okay, Monday. So I showed up the next Monday, walked in his door, and you could see this guy, his jaw hit the floor. He was like, I thought you were like a kid. I'm like, ah, <laughs> you never asked, so I never told you. I said, I was working in high tech and got sick of it and just had to change my life. So I never told him anything about my background. <laughs> Nothing. I just said I've been working in high tech and I got sick of it. So bless him. He took me on and it was brutal. It's six months of sweeping floors, getting shouted at by this guy uh, and just learning exactly how to pick up a camera. And what he taught me in six months is how to pick up is about light. And once you understand light and people, you can use any camera, and I've still got that ability. You can literally hand me any camera, put it to manual, and I'm going to be able to get you the shot immediately. And that was because Mark Halper was the guy that was like, close one eye, do this, what's the light? And he used to constantly be saying, um, we go into a new place to do a shoot, and I'm carrying all his stuff, and he'd say, F8, what's the stop? What's the da-da-da-da-da-da? And I'd have to give him the triangulation. You know, in, in cameras, there's the... There's the, uh, the aperture, the shutter speed, and the sensitivity of the film, right? It's the, the three-cornered thing. And he was constantly having me, like, guess it every time. And I got pretty good at it that I never used a meter. He never used a meter or anything. I was like, how do you do that? So. You know what I used to do. What's that? You're a photographer. 
I, I've done like a dozen covers of the New York Times Magazine. I work. <laughs> I used to live in Paris. <laughs> I, I've done like a thousand. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I was snapping on your heels, mate. <laughs> so you know how brutally difficult it is to even survive for a month doing that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. People, a lot of photographers are like down on wedding photography and I, would be, I wouldn't be at all. I'd be like, okay, this is how it's going to work. I've got an assistant who's going to do all of your wedding shots. So all of your bridal stand up, the groups that are, that's what he's going to do. Uh, and he actually, since then, has become a super well-known photographer here in LA. His name is uh, Josh uh, Kreese. Uh, Curious Josh is his name here. But back in the day, he'd be doing like all of the traditional wedding stuff. And I would have my Leica. I'd have a, a Leica, um, one of the early digital Leicas, but it was set to black and white with JPEG. So there's no, you can't change anything later. It's like shooting black and white film, high contrast. So you blow it and you're done, mate. And I would go out and shoot photojournalistic edge style stuff of the day. And <clears throat> because I've got a good personality and a lot of front and an English accent, I could always make people do stuff. And as a result, I got some great work. And I started to, to, to be able to earn some pretty decent money doing it. And then eventually Mark, <laughs> just go back to Mark Halper, eventually after six months, it obviously because I was in a super well-known band and I was signed to MCA Records in, in LA. Eventually, I knew I'd meet someone who knew me from the band days. And eventually, we did. I walked up and they were like, hey, well, what are you here for? I'm like, uh, I'm working for Mark. And Helper's going, uh, what do they mean? What are you here for? <laughs> and I had to come clean and go, yeah, I was in a, I was in a kind of a well-known band for a minute, Mark. He goes, yeah, I thought there was something going on. Because <laughs> people would walk in the studio and want to talk to me. I'm like, I'm just working for Mark. <laughs> Very humbling. And I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about hustling for business, about providing value, <laughs> about um, pricing, um, how to competitively bid for something. <laughs> Yeah, it was quite a time. What was that? How many How many was that? Is that my fourth? One, two, three. Oh, that's my fourth life, yeah. <clears throat> so then my fifth life, um, I've been married three times by now as well, I think. I got married again uh, while I was doing that. That was my fourth, fourth marriage, I think. And then uh, I started something called Focus at Will, which is still going on. So about 10 years ago now which is music that helps you while you are focusing or trying to focus when you're working. So this is an online service, um, got funded through Singular Singularity University, through the Google, basically, and um, moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And um, actually, I did that for the photography agency, so... Yeah, this was the fifth thing, was Focus at Will. And that's now a thriving business. There's 2 million users. And um, the um, it's a unique service. It's it's a thing, it's a specific types of music, all instrumental that is designed specifically for uh, the attention uh, to, to help you with. You, you know the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. So it helps you get traction with your work. So that was my fifth, uh, that was my fifth life. And uh, that's still going today. It's a, you know, it's uh, if I hadn't had the experience learning with Mark Halper and running the photography business, there's a lot of stuff I wouldn't have known how to do um, in, in being a CEO again of a high tech business. You know, we have a bunch of patents. We have this unique thing. Um, you know, there's apps and mobile apps and the desktop app. Um, and then... How did I meet you, Dave? Yeah, so my sixth life is... <laughs> Over the last 12 years, I've been part of a men's group called Metal. And people hear that and they go, is it like a heavy metal thing? I go, no, no, no. It's an acronym. It stands for Media, Entertainment, Technology, The Arts, and Leaders. 
And uh, it's a heart-centered group of guys that started here in L.A. that was founded by uh, Ken Rakowski. And Ken is an extraordinary man. He is a natural... Um, a natural communicator, he's a leader, he's a community builder, and he has an unerring, extraordinary sense of looking at chaos and going, oh, this is what's going to happen. So he pre- he predicted the crypto world happening, he, you know, one of the... So Metal used to meet, prior to the COVID uh, situation, on a Saturday morning here in Los Angeles, and there was 300 guys used to get together in a theatre. There was uh, it was an invitation only event, so you you'd had to be an entrepreneur. You had to have some kind of success. There's like a a level of um, ability and and general accomplishment that most of the men have in the group. And um, on a on any given Saturday, there would be talks and there would be. Um, you know, social communication and and the group uh, had a strong ethos. I don't know if did you ever come to the in person events in 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 the theatre? And I was I was a member of it, and it was wonderful. And then about two years ago, Ken Rokowski, the founder, um, said uh, his uh, his relationship broke up with his his wife, and they they divorced. And she was running the management of the metal organization. She was like an organizer, you know. And um, Ken's not real. Ken's strength is not as an organizer. His strength is is about being an extraordinary communicator on stage, about building community. He, you know, he introduced you and me, for instance, right? This is, this is what he does. And as I said earlier, he's super next level stuff about joining up dots and going, keep your eye on this thing. Um, so about two years ago, I could see that metal was uh, in danger of not surviving. And because I've known, I've learned a lot about um, subscription businesses and membership uh, businesses, I just leaned into Ken and I said, hey, I'd like to help you try and get this going. And that started my sixth life, where I am now the CEO and Ken's business partner in running this extraordinary men's group. And it has now gone from being a, a Los Angeles-based in-person group of two or 300 guys to being uh, an international organization where more than half of our members are uh, overseas and um and obviously not in Southern California, and we've got members like yourself from all over uh, the USA. And my goal here is to create a heart-centered, friendship-first men's group of entrepreneurs because guys like me and you are not really traditionally employable, luckily for us, you know, right? I can't imagine you've ever gone out and got a job. You've gone and made a job or (laughs) you raised some money and started a company to give other people jobs, right? That's what we do. We're just, we just, and entrepreneurs, especially men like us who are heart-centered and, you know, interested in in making the world a better place in a more practical way. We're a non-partisan, non-political group. And we have two rules. We don't discuss politics at any of our events or meetings, and we don't discuss religion. Nonpartisan. So as a result, you and I have been friends for a while now, and I have no idea what your political leanings are. You're a Jewish guy or a Catholic guy. I have no idea. And it, frankly, it doesn't matter. And when you meet in this environment in a community where you're heart-centered and you know that uh, your goal there is to lean in and give. You will get so much back. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta lean in and be of service, and then you will find that you'll get so much back in terms of opportunities and friendship and um, community and the big word brotherhood. And then the question when. People who are not part of metal hear about metal. They go, well, it sounds like a sausage fest. And like, well, (laughs) yeah, you could call it that. But 
men are much better men with their families, with their friends, in their work environments, when they're in regular contact with other heart-centered men. Because men are very driven by peer group recognition and peer group pressure. And if you're in a group of men who are coming from a place of kindness and love and abundance, you too, as a new member of the group, will will be part of that zeitgeist. You'll be part of that uh, energy. And that's what's happening. So there's the sixth. That was a quick, rapid walk through the last 42 years. But then, Will, this other thing happened where you died? Did I get that right? Yeah, so what happened there was when I was 59. I'll Actually, before I tell you what happened when I was 59, I'll tell you about my dad. Uh, my dad is in his late 80s, uh, English um, by accent, but Irish by uh, heritage. And like a lot of older Irish guys, he's a nutcase. You know, he's he's invincible. You know, he wants to, you know, he drinks Jameson's and wants to fight people. And... <laughs> Mr. Henschel, oh no, what did you say? You know, he's, he doesn't have an Irish accent, but he kind of does if you see him looking. He's, he's this big red beard still. You know, he rides his motorcycle without a helmet because he can't find his helmet. <laughs> the co- and he lives in a little village, you know, 100 miles out of, out of London. And the cop's like, hello, Mr. Henschel. He goes, it's raining. I, I got to get back. I'm going to ride my bike quickly so I can get home. And, you know. My dad's a nutcase. So I assumed, health-wise, I'd be like my dad. So my absolute astonishment in 2018, in July, on July the 3rd, in fact, I woke up in hospital after having had 10 days before a widow-maker heart attack and had a complete cardiac arrest. My, my, I flatlined for 20 minutes. My wife... Um, Gave me uh, CPR, kept my uh, kept me alive, and um, I took my first breath off the ventilator at uh, twelve twenty one um, on July the third, two thousand eighteen. If anybody is listening to this and you've been in the ICU and you've been on a ventilator, you know the most important thing that the doctors and nurses are trying to have you do is breathe unaided, take you off the ventilator. And um, when you'd had a widowmaker, only 2% of people that have widowmakers survive. When you hear of someone dropping dead of a heart attack, it's always 100% occlusion in the LAD, which is the lower, which is the left anterior, the lower anterior descending artery. And I had no idea I was at risk, and clearly I was. And um, it was a huge shock and a change to my life. And in the last three years, I've recovered I'm still not 100% as robust as I was before it happened, but I'm I'm largely back. And I'm blessed that I am in the 2% of people that survive. And I found out recently that one statistically, 1% of the people who survive a, um, a widowmaker uh, have cognitive impairment, and 1% does not. And I'm blessed to, unless you can tell me otherwise, I, I seem to have most of my marbles still. You're the, you're the second person I'm putting on, uh, we've interviewed for ages, who's survived a Widowmaker heart attack. Hell yeah. Who was the other person? Uh, Owen McKibben, um, former, um, he's done like, I don't know, 20s of model professional athlete, like in incredible shape. Mm-hmm. And at like 20, he was a, he was like an Olympic volleyball player. And just all of a sudden one day, boom, like in his mid 20s. Wow. I was in my late 50s, so statistically I was right in the danger zone. I mean, what I now know, looking back on it, with the knowledge I've got from other people I've met around this, yeah, I was at risk. I was eating a high-sodium diet. I was eating red meat. I was stressed in my work. I was uh, overextended in the amount of hours I was working, as well as doing stressful work. Um. I wasn't exercising properly. I was ignoring my high cholesterol. You know, I have, my cholesterol was 270, which is very high. high. However, both African-American and Irish heritage, we both have high cholesterol levels that you can't easily diet out of. 
And I'd been trying to diet out of it. And I, It'll be fine, which it was not, clearly. So, yeah, I, uh, I was actually, it was a Monday night when it happened and I was in bed with my then fiancé, actually then girlfriend, who's now my wife, and uh, we just finished uh, having sex. And I came and went at the same time in her <laughs> arms. Which, I got to say, if you're the person who's dying, it's the way you'd want to go. Um, but it was very traumatic for my girl. There's a, there's a number of things about the whole experience that are really unexplainable. And the first one is this, about... Um, Three months before this happened, four months maybe before this happened, I had a wild hair up my ass to get uh, first aid and CPR training. I'm often out hiking here in LA with a bigger group, and there have been a couple of occasions where something had happened, someone had fallen down or someone had had a chest pain, and on both of those occasions there happened to be a physician in the group, in the hiking group. And I was like, man... If that had happened and there was no one here who had any medical experience, what would we do? So I said to the wife, hey, I really want to go and do CPR training and get basic first aid. And I want to carry a little kit in my backpack. And I just want us just in case something happens. And she said, she looked at me and she said, yeah, I'm going to come too. Because what happens if something happens to you? So three months before, we both went to Santa Monica Red Cross and we did a first aid CPR course. It was actually kind of difficult to do. And we both trained in CPR, little knowing three months later, four months later, she was going to be literally saving my life. And she did. And she generally doesn't let me forget that. <laughs> <laughs> If you knew my wife, you'd know she's Serbian. Anybody knows about the Serbian culture? It's very in your face about a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's like Russian. That's so powerful. And as a result of that experience, um, Will, what's different for you now? Well, I didn't meet Jesus. He never bloody showed up, mate. And I was hoping I'd go to hell because all my mates... I'd all go to hell and we'd all have a lot of fun in hell. I don't want to go to heaven. That's all the stuck up people, right? Um, being serious uh, about it. My experience of dying was that the light went off immediately. It's like, you're gone. There was no white tunnel, white light tunnel, nothing. You're just gone. It was instant unconscious. And that sounds very depressing, doesn't it? Um, I've talked to a bunch of people who've had... I didn't have a near-death experience, I actually had a death experience. I flatlined for 20 minutes. And um, what happened was that as I recovered consciousness, and I was in a coma for many, many days, I my consciousness, my awareness of being in a body started to come back. And it was like being in a really groggy dream. It was like um, being drunk when you're 14 years old. You know that kind of feeling? <clears throat> and um, I suddenly had, I can remember it, a distinct um, ah moment about how it all works. It was a real like, oh, realization. And that is that we are soul beings in a human body and we connect to our root through our breath. And we connect to the being part of being human through our breath. And every time you breathe in, you connect to life energy and the life energy is, depending on your spiritual, religious background, this life energy is what you would call God or Jesus or Jehovah or Muhammad or whatever you want to call it. There's this thing which is scientifically verifiable. There's this thing called the life energy. Um, since then, I've talked to quite a few scientists about this, and 
the the best uh, the, the best uh, explanation uh, of this came across from um, one of the guys I know um, from Singularity University, one of the scientists there, and um, he said, if you look in a microscope, you can visually see cells dividing. All cells divide. You can see it with your own eyes. You don't have to believe anything. It's happening right in front of you. And that's, he said, but the question is, what's making them divide? There's some force that science doesn't understand that's making the cells divide. What is that? And science doesn't know, and it's one of the big unknowns about what is, what, what is life, right? Why does that happen? Well, when I was in this process of coming back to life, I realized that we connect to that energy, the thing that you can see making the cells divide when we breathe in. So you don't have to believe in God or Jesus or anything because every time you breathe, you connect to the life force or God, if you like. As I was coming back to consciousness, as I was being taken off the ventilator, I kept seeing these really spectacularly beautiful trees, this uh, vision of these white trees on a background, on a, on a, uh, these white trees on a hillside. So the background of the trees was this hillside. And I've no idea where the vision came from because I've, I mean, I've always liked trees, you know, I like walking in the woods, but I never had a connection with the trees. And um, as soon as I, where's my phone gone? As soon as I um, took my first breath and, you know, was able to actually, uh, you know, do my first talk, I said to them, pass me my phone, pass me my phone. And I discovered that the, the trees that I was looking at were aspen trees, the trees that I was visualizing. And I'm just going to hold this up to the uh, camera so that you can see this. I'm, I'm here for viewers in black and white. I'm, I'm scrolling feverishly through my cell phone. Oh, do I have these even in here? I hope I do. Here we go. These are aspen trees. And the difference between aspen trees and many other trees is that aspens propagate through their roots. You know, some trees do, but aspens particularly do. And so when you see a stand of aspens or a forest of aspens, you're not seeing the organism. That's just the visible aspects of the organism. And the aspen organism is this monstrous root system that sits under the ground. And the aspens just pop up. And they are the visible aspects of the organism. So if there's a forest fire, a really bad fire, the aspens are the first trees that grow back because the organism is, is that's, the trees are just the bit you can see of it. And I realized in the, like, whoa, when I took my first breath that we humans are just like that. We're just the visible aspects of the divine. And we connect to the root, which we can't see every time we breathe. And when you look at a bunch of humans, you're just seeing the trees. You're not seeing the root. You're not seeing the organism that is the thing that keeps us alive. And uh, I had a tattoo made. I have the aspens on my on my arm. It's upside down if I hold it like this. Mm. Yeah. So um, that's what I bring back from the other side. It's beautiful and it's way simpler than you think. We are all soul beings in a human form and we connect to the being part of being a human every time we breathe so how have you this this realization of the interconnectedness mm -hmm. how has that changed your view and and how you behave how do you behave differently now well i had a strong um spiritual practice for for the last sort of 15 years before this happened to me. So I was conscious that uh, we are all connected to source. And I was aware of that. And when I meditated, I was able to understand that we are one and that you, the, the, that sense of oneness, you know, when you're in, when you meditate and you're able to get, get out of your own way. So 
I'd I'd been aware and I'd I'd sort of found my own path to understanding how God works by just realizing the thing that you're searching for often as a man in your 20s, your 30s and your 40s in my case is behind you. You're looking all the way and it's the shadow, it's behind you and you are already connected to God because you are already divine. And so I'd, I'd already, in Buddhist uh, culture is, is, is close to where I'd, I'd come from. But when I went through this first-hand experience of reincarnating consciously into my body and taking the first breath off a ventilator, which was like the first breath with a newborn child, <gasps> it, it really, uh, for me, it gave me uh, a sense of knowing. So I'm not, a, I'm not at all afraid of dying now because I did it already one time. Um, I uh, <clears throat> I have a peace from it that um, which I never had before. But what it's done for me is made me very conscious of we are joyful beings, and I was living my life where I was not having a joyful part of my day. So the most important thing that I bring back from it is the knowledge that we are meant to be joyous. We're meant to be able to just walk on the beach for an hour and not think about anything. We'd pick up your guitar and just play some stuff. Just hang out with your dog. Just be really present with someone. Um, And one of the reasons, the, the most driving reason why I've got involved with Ken and been the you know the 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 driving force behind the metal men's group now is that community and brotherhood is the most important thing that we have as men and out of that brotherhood and out of the connection and friendship and long-term deep love you can have and, and and the accountability you have with other brothers out of that we make better societies because it is non-partisan, it is non-political, it is non-religious. It's, it's, it sits outside of all of those things. While I was in the hospital, 150 metal guys came to see me. I'm on a ventilator, I can't really talk. And the nurse would be like, there's another six guys to see you, Mr. Henschel. I'm like, <laughs> it became really overwhelming. You know? So, brotherhood is very very important we make better decisions when we know each other well will i had no idea where we would be talking about today and and where this would go but this is just really exceeded my expectations (laughs) i've not really talked about the phases of my life ever i don't think (laughs) i've been explaining it to you like that and i'm like i need to i need to take a nap after all of that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know i'm thinking about that kid on stage um with the london beat yeah and then i'm thinking about who i'm talking to here yeah that's a distance that was quite a bloody journey yeah and the crazy thing is um it's unique to to singers and songwriters and that is if you are an actor and you've had material success in a movie or a TV series, people kind of recognize you from the, especially if they just shown or as a rerun or, but it's like these, these things that are out there, but they're not in your life every day because it was a great movie back in 1992 or, right? But if you're a songwriter and you had a bunch of songs on, on the radio, and I've got five that, that get played a lot over the years, thinking about you, better love, come back, there's a bunch of them. And they follow you around. Like I was in Home Depot the other day, and I heard two of my songs in like 40 minutes. I, I wanted to go and hug someone because we just come out of COVID, and I just want to go and hug one of the guys and go, oh, I've been thinking about you too. I wrote that thing. <laughs> that's my song (laughs) I know but what happens is that your a part of your heart becomes part of the global culture because pop music and 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 
music generally is is sort of defines an era. And so in the early 90s, if you ever listened to the radio, and now if you listen to golden oldies, believe it or not, uh, you know, London Beat stuff gets played loads still. And we are part of the fabric of the culture of that era. And that is the most beautiful thing. It is the most inspiring um, thing to be able to do. It's in many ways. Um, it was brutally difficult to do, by the way, being in a hit band, you know, in the height of the music business then. Good God, it was a brutal game. What the actual F? There were, you know, lines of cocaine. I was sober the entire time I was in the band. Um, didn't, didn't even drink coffee for for 20 years, and I'd be in places where there'd be like John Belushi-sized, you know, rails of coke on tables, and I'd be like, good God, what's up with you people? And that was the music business. Ageism. I love that you're doing this. I love that Ageist is the name of your publication. I love that Ageism is a thing. And I still work in high tech, right? So I'm still connected to all kinds of startups and I, I'm now an advisor and all kinds of things. And I have never had material ageism against me. Mm -hmm. Because I can walk in a room, I've been a rock star, I've done all this shit, I've done this stuff, and I've, I'm also like, especially now I died and come back, I, I'm like, I can see a 30-year-old and I'm going to be like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right? It'd be like meeting Keith Richards. You'd be like, yeah. You got the ages with Keith fucking Richards, mate. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> um we we have a lot of wisdom and we are men in their sixties now, we are the first generation who are punks, who are dangerous. We are the first generation who really you know we were post Elvis, we were the first, you know, I'm one of the younger boomers just. Um, and we as a generation are not like old people. We are stylish and we're in good shape and we still have considerable amount of uh, purchasing power and we, uh, we represent well. And um, when I compare the 60s, I know, with the folk that are in their 70s now, there's a big difference. Big, big difference. Um, and um, I think we are the first generation of a new type of older uh, guys. You know, I know that in my 80s and 90s, God forbid I don't make it that long, I hope I do, um, we're still going to be the dangerous guys. We're still going to be thrown out of clubs. I know they are. We're going to Mr. Henschel, Mr. Stewart. I'm sorry, you've got to leave now. And you're like, fuck you, no, bollocks, mate. <laughs> I remember some time ago, I I, I had a girlfriend and, and I was about uh, late 40s or something. She was a couple of years older than me. And uh, she was very stylish. And I remember we went to an opening of a club. We were living in Manhattan. And I, and I said to her, I said, um, you know, all these young people, they're like 20 and they're like staring at us. Like, this feels weird. And she's like, darling, they're terrified of us. Which <laughs> <laughs> was the truth. <laughs> Tell me about it. You know. Right? Yeah. Good. Um, well, thank you, uh, Dave. It's uh, a real pleasure to meet the, the real Dave Stewart. As you know, I know David Stewart from Eurythmics. But I've finally met the original Dave Stewart. Here he is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Will. Um, wonderful to be here. Um, and great to have you. Thanks so much. Great to connect, mate. Let me know how I can help. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the show today. I mean, what's your favorite takeaway from Will Henschel? You know, is it, it's not over till it's over? Or... I love what he was saying about we humans are the visible aspects of the divine. I just thought that was pretty great. And I, I loved his thought about how we're the first generation of sort of a new type of person and how, I love how in his words, we're still dangerous. <laughs> 
Um, an amazing man. Just a, a real privilege to have that conversation. I hope you all got as much out of that as I did. Uh, hey, if you'd like to connect with me, you can hit me up directly, david at superage.com. I answer all of my email directly and promptly. We also really love it when you share the podcast with others. Maybe somebody else would be interested in Will and his background. And please, if you're listening to us on iTunes or um, you know Google or wherever you're listening, please give us a rating, hopefully a good rating, and a good comment. We love those too. Everybody have a wonderful week. Stay creative, and we'll see you next week. Bye now.